0: Philippians chapter 1 and we'll read together verses 12 through verse 18 actually through verse 21 12 through verse 21 now I want you to know brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, before we can hope to understand anything in your word in a spiritual sense or to be impacted by it, we must first have the ministry of the Spirit of God, whereby we might be illumined. illumined to, your word would be illumined to us, and our hearts would be open to it. And so we ask that you would do that this morning. As we look at your word, we pray that you would change us through it, and that you would be glorified here during this time in our study. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, in Paul's day, they didn't have email. I know that's not going to come as a surprise to most of you, and some of you are probably hoping that I'm going to say something a little bit more profound than that before we leave this morning stick around because anything's possible and that just might happen but sometimes keeping a detail like that in the front of our minds can help us to appreciate what it is like to be in the church of Philippi and to receive the letter from Paul to the Philippian Christians we live in an age of mass communication in which we almost take for granted the fact that we can speak to anybody anywhere in the world at the in the drop of a hat at the blink of an eye get a response back in a couple of minutes time and some of us don't even know what it's like to live in a world that's not like that. Some of you seated here this morning actually remember a time when if you wanted to cross the Atlantic you had to get on a boat and take several weeks to make the journey and some of you maybe have already done that or done that sometime in your life. Communication is an incredible thing. We have instant access to events that take place on the other side of the globe, 12 time zones away. And we can know about those events, get pictures of those events, and communicate with people involved in those events in a matter of seconds. And travel for us is a marvel, is it not? I can get in my car and in 60 minutes be someplace that would have taken Paul two or three days to get there. If Paul wanted a, a brand new tool that came out in the Craftsman catalog, and it was in Antioch because the Sears store in Jerusalem didn't carry that tool, which that's how it happens, so you've got to travel 45 minutes or 60, 45 miles or 60 miles away to get it. It would take him three days to get there to get the tool and then three days to get back to Jerusalem where he could use the tool in everyday use. For us, we know that if we have to get a tool, it's in Coeur d'Alene. We jump in our car, 45 minutes we're there, 45 minutes we're back. It would have taken Paul a week. It takes us an hour and a half, two hours, unless the bridge is under construction. Then it takes us a week too. And we can sympathize with Paul But our communication and our travel is simply mind-boggling when you think of it. And when you try and put yourself in a world where that type of communication didn't happen, and where sometimes it would take not moments, and not minutes, and not weeks, but literally months to communicate with somebody who was three or four or five hundred miles away, you begin to see what it was like to be in Philippi and to receive this letter to the Philippians. Let Let me illustrate it for you. I want you to imagine that you're sitting in the city of Philippi. It's the spring of 58 A.D. And some of the Jewish members of your congregation have traveled back to Jerusalem for the spring feast, the feast of Passover and Pentecost. And uh, they were there to visit some families to celebrate the feast, maybe witness, share their faith in the temple. And they arrive back in late spring of the year, and they show up for a Sunday morning worship service, and they're, they're, you're there gathered together. And one of these Jewish brethren who was in Jerusalem says, I'd like to give a testimony or at least a share with what happened while I was in Jerusalem. Sure. So they stand up and they begin to share. Look, when we went to Jerusalem, we heard rumors that Paul was on his way to Jerusalem because we knew he was hoping to do that. Remember, he stopped in our church. He picked up the offering. He was on his way through Macedonia at He's going to travel back to Jerusalem to drop off the offering to the saints. We were hoping to at least sort of touch base with Paul while we were there. And we looked around the city. We figured, where's the best place to find the Apostle Paul during the spring feast? Go to the temple. So we went to the temple, and what did we find? The minute Paul steps into the temple, a riot breaks out. And we watched this mob literally take him outside the temple and begin to beat on him. They wanted to kill him. And they beat him like a borrowed mule. And luckily, Lysias came in and and broke up the crowd and dispersed it, took Paul into custody. And then we just heard, heard some news that Paul had appeared before the Sanhedrin the next day. Details are a little sketchy, but all we know is that he was struck in the mouth, and the whole the whole gathering burst into an uproar when Paul talked about the resurrection. And so we wanted to go in to encourage Paul because, of course, we know the beloved apostle. So we decided we would go into the barracks the next morning and visit Paul, encourage him, see if we could provide anything, pray with him, uh, maybe minister to him in some way. And we got to the barracks and we found out that under the cover of night, they had rushed Paul out of the city. And we don't even know where they took him. All we know is they took him out of the city. And then we found out that there had been a plot for him to take his life. And that 40 men had taken an oath not to eat or drink until they killed the Apostle Paul. So Lysias had to rush him out. We don't know where they took him. We don't know how long he's going to be gone. We don't know what's going on. Wish we could tell you more. So then you wait. Not moments. You don't go in and get on the Internet and click and find out, okay, what happened to the Apostle Paul? Just email Timothy and Titus and see what's going on. Now you don't get that at all. You wait maybe a couple of months. And then word comes through somebody else. Hey, we heard that the Apostle Paul, when he was taken out of Jerusalem, was taken to Caesarea. And he stood trial before Festus. Well, has Festus ruled on his case? Is he innocent or guilty? We don't know. Festus still hasn't ruled. He's just kind of keeping it in limbo. Okay, well, let's pray for the Apostle Paul. Pray for a good outcome to the trial. Pray for a good ruling. Pray that God would work in Festus's heart. So you wait month after month after month after month. And pretty soon, after a couple of years, you hear word, Hey, last we heard, the Apostle Paul was taken out of Caesarea. He was put on board an Alexandrian ship, and he was sent across the Mediterranean in the middle of winter. And you remember that big storm we had, it lasted like four or five weeks that covered the entire Mediterranean. You remember that? Paul was out in the middle of a ship during the middle of that storm. Oh! Was he okay? Well, yeah, we think he's okay. He landed, he got shipwrecked on, a, on an island, the island of Malta. He was bitten by a viper. I be careful when I say that word. Bitten by a viper. And he survived and he finally made it to Rome. Well well, now what's going to happen? Well, last we heard he's waiting to stand trial before Nero. Has he stood trial yet? We don't know. Details are still a little sketchy. So you wait month after month after month, and finally you hear Paul's case is being delayed. He's been there almost two years, and you think, you know what? Let's take up an offering. We'll send it by the hand of one of our most trusted brethren, Epaphroditus. We'll give it to Paul to provide for his needs, encourage him a little, send Epaphroditus there to minister to him. So you send off Epaphroditus, and you're not sure how Paul was received in Rome. You haven't heard. You don't know, is he was he, did he suffer any kind of physical injuries in the shipwreck? Is he doing okay? Is Timothy with him? Is Titus with him? Is Tychicus with him? What about Gaius and Aristarchus? Dr. Luke, what's happening to him? Is Paul encouraged? Is he discouraged? Has he abandoned it? Is he given him up? Maybe he's already stood trial, been condemned, and is executed before we've even decided to send a gift to him. But let's send the gift anyway, and let's wait and hear back. And so several more months go by because it's, 450, almost 500 miles between, as the crow flies between Philippi and Rome. So you wait month after month after month and then Timothy shows up. And what does he have? He has a letter from the Apostle Paul. And what do you say in your mind? What are you thinking in your mind? I want to rip that thing open and find out how is Paul doing? What are his circumstances like? How has he been faring? Is he emotionally beaten down? Is he joyful? Is he injured or is he in good physical health? Is he going to be released? Maybe he's waiting for death. Maybe we're going to get a letter like 2 Timothy where Paul says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. I'm done. I'm going home to my eternal reward. I'm just waiting for the axe to come down on my neck. Maybe that's the type of letter we'll get. Or maybe this is a letter saying, hey, I've faced trial. I've been released. I'm coming to see you soon. What kind of a letter are we going to get? So you open up Philippians and you begin to read it. Now do you think that after five years, two years in Caesarea, Several months in transit and two full years in Rome. Do you think that after nearly five years of just sketchy details, that you would be listening with bated breath to find out the Apostle Paul's condition? How are his? What are his circumstances like? How is he faring? You'd want to hear that, wouldn't you? So you open up the letter, undo the scroll, and you begin to read, and you get through sort of a standard introduction. Paul and Timothy. Okay, Timothy's with him. To all the saints in Philippi, along with the elders and deacons. We've got. Um, an expression of thanks. I'm thankful to you for what God is doing in you. I'm thankful that God is going to preserve you to the end. I'm thankful for the gift that you sent me. And you read about His affection for you. And oh, isn't that heartwarming? And here's what the Apostle Paul is praying for us. This is great. And then you get to verse 12, which really is the body of the letter. And here is where Paul addresses his circumstances. And he says in verse 12, Now brethren, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the further progress, for the advancement, of the Gospel. And you think, okay, now we get to the meat of it. Now we're going to find out what are Paul's circumstances like? How has he been? What is he doing? And you know what we read? We read something that you wouldn't expect to read in a letter like that. And we read something that you and I most certainly, I'm willing to bet this, something that you and I most certainly would never write. And something that we would never expect to read. So let's pick it up in verse 12. And we're going to see how the Apostle Paul's circumstances furthered the gospel because his imprisonment had an, an impact, an influence in two spheres. First, among the Praetorian Guard, and then second, among the other Christians in Rome. Look at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, originally I thought we were going to get all the way through verse 17 and 18 of the passage, but it's too much to deal with in one Sunday. So we're going to split it up. We're going to look at these two places where Paul's imprisonment had an influence amongst the Praetorian Guard and then among the Christians in Rome. And then next week we'll look at the people who were preaching Christ in the city of Rome and what their motives were. Now, verse 12 sort of indicates to us a transition. Now, brethren, I want you to know, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. You can tell that he's dropping the introductory comments of verses 1 to 11, and he's saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, they, Paul knew that they had been praying for him. He mentions that down in verse 19. This is going to turn out for my deliverance through your prayers for me. He knew that the church was praying for him. He knew that the church was concerned, and the church was asking questions that in the similar situations you and I would be asking as well. We would be asking questions like this. Why is it that the Lord allowed the Apostle Paul to be seized in the temple and arrested and undergo all of that and to be bound up for five years? Out of the 15 years of his ministry, five of it was spent in prison. Why does the Lord allow that to happen? This man had such a passion for souls. He was so affected. So mentally gifted, so spiritually gifted, so powerful and so dynamic in his ministry, he accomplished more in ten years than ten people do in ten lifetimes. Why is it that the Lord would allow him to undergo all of these afflictions and the trials and the circumstances that turn sour? What's behind all of that? You and I ask the same questions when circumstances turn sour in our lives, don't we? Why me, Lord? Why this at all? What are you hoping to accomplish through this? Through the death of a child? Through the terminal illness of a spouse? Through an illness of a loved one? Through a cancer diagnosis? Through a horrific car accident? Lord, what are you hoping to accomplish in these circumstances? Why me or why that person? Why now? You could ask the same thing of all circumstances and situations. What possible good could come from him being locked up in a prison for five years, if you were Satan and you wanted to mastermind a plan to stop the spread of the gospel in the first century, your number one objective would be whom? Paul. You would know, if I can take this guy down, I might be able to stomp out this whole movement. And he tried and he tried and he tried. We see it all the way through the book of Acts, all of his plans, all of his schemes. They all failed But then we look at Paul's imprisonment and we say, wow, what an accomplishment. Satan was able to put him in a prison for five years. That must have squashed everything. What a a horrific thing that is. Well, Paul writes to the Philippians. He knows they're thinking this. He knows they're wondering these things. These things are on the top of their mind. And so what does he say? Brethren, I want you to know that my circumstances have actually turned out for the furtherance or the propagation, the progress of the gospel. Now, friends, I want you to know Notice what Paul does not say in addressing his circumstances. Do you notice he doesn't say this? Brethren, I want you to know that my situation, my condition, not as bad as you might first have heard. I want you to know I'm in my own rented quarters. Things are good. i got a Praetorian guard, sometimes two, stationed with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I have unfettered access to my friends. They come. I'm able to teach and preach unhindered. Rent is a little steep, but I've got this little apartment on on the corner of 1st and Nero Avenue. And real estate's going through the roof, but God has provided, and things are good. I'm not able to go out. I'm I'm sort of bound here at home. People can come to me. It's not horrible, but it's not real good. You notice he doesn't say that? Notice he doesn't say anything about his condition whatsoever. My circumstances, Paul said. And you're sort of waiting with bated breath. Tell us about your circumstances, Paul. And he doesn't even tell you anything about his circumstances. Now, is that frustrating or what? We want to know how things are going with you, Paul. And all he says is, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. He doesn't give out any kind of vindictive, vehement, uh, hostile, hateful speech toward his enemies or to those who have caused his problems. Doesn't do that. Doesn't talk about his circumstances. Doesn't lament them at all. Now I, myself, and let's all be honest here this morning, we would complain, wouldn't we? We would complain. Now listen, I want you to know up front, I would sanctify my complaints by making them sound very holy. I would dress them in all sorts of Christian garb. I would say, I'm not free to preach the gospel like I would really like to. I'm not free to travel around and to serve others as as I would really hope to. I'm not free to go out and plant other churches and I'm sort of, Pigeon here in my own little rented quarters and <sighs> things are horrible. But God is good. And that's how we do it, right? We sanctify our complaints. We dress them up in Christian garb. But they are complaints nonetheless. Not a single complaint from the Apostle Paul. Miserly as it pertains to the details about his imprisonment, his circumstances, his condition, his physical well-being, his spiritual well-being, doesn't say anything about that. Was he injured in the shipwreck? Doesn't say. How is, how is God providing for him financially? Doesn't say. Is he being beaten once a week by the guards? He doesn't say. All he says is, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. Friends, notice this. The only thing that Paul concerned about was, was concerned about was what? The progress of the Gospel. For Paul, the primary question was not, what is going to happen to me? For Paul, his primary question was, what is going to happen to the Gospel as a result of what happens to me? That was the issue. His entire life was bound up and wrapped up in the Gospel. He didn't ask, what's going to happen to Paul? Why do I have to go through this? Am I going to die? Am I going to live? Will I be innocent? Will I be pronounced guilty? Will I be beaten or will I be comfortable? Will God provide or will He not provide? Will I have faith to stay it out? Will I not have faith to stay it out? He doesn't worry about any of those things. His consuming question is not what is going to happen to Paul. His consuming question is what will happen to the Gospel as a result of what happens to me. Now you have to ask yourself, is this some sort of superficial veneer that the Apostle Paul is putting up for the Philippians? To look real sanctified and to sound real holy and to look like everything is his only consume is for the Gospel or is that really typically vintage Paul? Friends, it is vintage Paul That is classic Paul. That is what Paul was like. And what we get in Philippians is not a sanctified approach to his his circumstances, that he's trying to put on some veneer and play that everything is okay. It's not that at all. This is Paul. You catch him in an unguarded moment. What's most important to you? Oh, it's the Gospel. You catch him in the middle of his circumstances and his trials, and, and you just observe him, and you would be able to say, you know what, by watching him, I think that the most important thing to him is the Gospel. That's just Paul. I'm under obligation to barbarians and to Greeks. And I'm ready myself to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome. Because I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says, If I preach the Gospel, I have nothing of which to boast because I'm under compulsion. Woe is me if I don't preach the Gospel. Verse 23 of the same passage, he says, I do everything for the sake of the Gospel. Acts 20, verse 24, I don't count my own life as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. That's Paul's life. It wasn't about Paul. It wasn't about his circumstances. All he says is, hey, the gospel's going forward. But we want to know, Paul, come on, be a little bit more generous with the details of your circumstances. And somebody in Philippi might rightly object and say, Paul, give us some information about the circumstances that you're enduring. But Paul knew this. That they knew him well enough to know that as long as the gospel was going forward, Paul was happy. Didn't matter what his circumstances were, didn't matter what his sufferings were, didn't matter what his living conditions were like. If his life is wrapped up in the gospel of Christ, then as long as the gospel is advancing, Paul was happy. And they would read this, the Philippians would. And they would read Paul say, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And they would say, he's doing just fine. Why? doesn't matter what his circumstances are. They've turned out for the progress of the gospel. Paul is content. He's doing good. But then he specifically says in two areas. First, amongst the Praetorian guard. Look at verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian Guard to everyone else. Some of your translations may say palace, may translate praetorian palace. It shouldn't be translated praetorian. The word praetorian was used of a residence of a governor, like back in Caesarea where Paul stayed in the governor's, in Herod's praetorium. But it was never used of the imperial residence in the city. And the fact that Paul says, and everyone else, indicates that he's talking about people, not about places. He's talking about the praetorian guard. The, that group of soldiers that was handpicked by Ciro, uh, Ciro, Nero, the Caesar, To guard him, that group of soldiers that was handpicked by him as his bodyguards. That was the Praetorian Guard. There were 9,000 of them. They were the elite soldiers and they had two responsibilities. To keep order within the city and to protect the emperor and his family and his dwelling place. They were very respected. They served for 12 to 16 years. And at the end of their 12 to 16 years, they got a hefty severance package. These guys were paid like no government worker you've ever seen. And when they retired from the Praetorian Guard, they were made kings. They were literally called kingmakers or emperor makers because they were so wealthy. They had land. They had possessions. Do you remember Julius in chapter 27 that was on board the ship with the Apostle Paul during the storm and the shipwreck? Julius was of the Augustan cohort. It was a smaller division in the Praetorian Guard. And he had charge of Paul from Caesarea back to Rome. He was a bodyguard for Caesar. Paul has Caesar's bodyguards attending to him night and day. So here's how it worked. The soldiers would come in, and Paul couldn't be left alone for any amount of time whatsoever. So you'd have a shift where the soldier would come in, and his duty was to guard the Apostle Paul make sure that there was no escape attempted and to make sure that nobody gave Paul or did anything for Paul that wasn't, by law, allowed. And So he would spend his shift there, and then the next Praetorian guard would come in and seek to alleviate him. Then he would leave, and the next guy would show up, and you'd have this rotating shift. Now what is Paul doing while the guards are rotating in and out of his quarters? What do you think Paul's doing? Well, he's preaching and teaching the Word and the Kingdom concerning Jesus unhindered, Acts 28 at the end of the chapter says. So they're sitting in on Paul's Bible studies. (laughs) The Praetorian Guard sitting in on Paul's Bible studies. And the Jews are asking him questions and Christians are asking him questions and Paul's explaining the Scriptures and going through the Old Testament and showing that Jesus is the Messiah and confronting both Gentiles and Jews with their sin and the Praetorian Guard members are paid and forced to say there, Night after night, day after day, sit through all of that and listen to it. And then you know what they do when they leave and they go back to their barracks? They're sitting around playing poker, smoking their cigarettes and drinking their gin on their time off like most soldiers do, and they're talking about the Apostle Paul. say, what did you think about what he said in the barracks in his quarters today? Well, that was very interesting. Do you think it's possible that this short little Jew has a corner on the truth Do you think it's possible that that little guy really knows what he's talking about and that what he's saying about this Jesus is true? Do you think the resurrection is true? And they had heard his testimony, I think, over and over and over again. They knew him. They knew what he had done. His reputation was widespread. And then they're sitting there talking about this. i got some questions for him next time we're assigned to his house. The next time they're assigned to his house, one of the Praetorian guards raises their question. i got a question for you, Paul. And they sit in on him eight hours a day. And when he's alone before bed and they're sitting down to eat a meal, the praetorian guard is there and it's just Paul and the praetorian guard. And what do you think Paul wants to talk about? The gospel. And do you think some of those praetorian guard members got saved? Look over at Philippians chapter 4, verse 22 for just a moment. Paul writes, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. <laughs> Listen. Christians in Nero's home? Tell me, how did that happen? How did there get to be Christians in Nero's household? Do you know anything about Nero? Nero? Do you know how wicked and depraved and wicked and mentally unstable that guy is? And Paul sent greetings from saints, believers, who were in Nero's home. How did those people become Christians? I think it was largely through the influence of the Apostle Paul. Because for two years, Paul's evangelizing Nero's bodyguards. And the people who have firsthand access to Nero, to his family, to his servants, to his home, Paul's sharing Christ with them. So then he writes to the Philippians and he says, Look, you've got to understand, my circumstances don't mean anything to me because the Gospel is progressing and my imprisonment in the cause of Christ is becoming well-known throughout the whole Praetorian guard. They're all talking I'm the talk of the barracks, I'm the talk of the town. There are believers within Caesar's bodyguard detail and believers within Caesar's home. Now do you think that Paul was content to be in prison and suffer whatever it was so long as the gospel could progress and go into Caesar's bodyguard detail and Caesar's home. Do you think he's content with that? He's content with that. Why? All that matters to Paul? Greater progress of the gospel. It's not a matter of what happens to Paul. It's a matter of what happens to the gospel as a result of what happens to Paul. And if the gospel progresses, then he's content with that. And it had its influence in the Praetorian Guard. Second, it had its influence amongst the other believers in Rome. Look at verse 14. Back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, "...and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear." The other Christians had looked at Paul. They saw his imprisonment in the cause of Christ. They saw what he was enduring, his affliction, his suffering, his circumstances. And they said, you know what? If this guy can endure all of that for the sake of the Gospel, we can endure a little bit more for the sake of the Gospel. And Paul's courage became contagious. Because courage has a way of being contagious. Do you ever notice that? Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. And as you read through Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll see how one or two people who are willing to die for their faith and suffer affliction can end up lighting a fire that would burn through thousands of people and encourage them. We have a recent example of that even in our own country. In the 1950s, five Wheaton College graduates went to the mission field to share the gospel with the Aka Indians. All five of those guys, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and three others, died and were speared to death on a shore next to a river for bringing the gospel to the Aka Indians. One of the unforeseen and yet incredible blessings of that tragedy was the fact that for almost the next 20 years, a high number of Wheaton College graduates were inspired by their example and gave their lives to go into the mission field and give their lives for the sake of the progress of the gospel. For almost 20 years, the number of missionaries going to foreign fields and giving their lives for the sake of the gospel went right through the roof. But why? Because courage is contagious. You can't possibly estimate the influence of men like David Brainerd and William Carey, and Hudson, and David Livingston, and others who have gone to the mission field and endured incredible affliction. The believers in Rome, they saw the Apostle Paul, they saw his his demeanor under trials and affliction, they said, you know what, we can do this. Friends, Rome was not an easy city to live in. I know you think that modern day America is real depraved and real debauched, and boy, we're going down the tubes and we're just circling the drain ready to go right down the, the P-trap. That's not the way it is at all. Not Nothing compared to Rome. Listen, Rome was wicked beyond your imagination. Rome was the seat of political power. Rome was the seat of depravity. It was where the emperor was worshipped. Christians weren't liked in Rome. The gospel had made its way there. It had sort of formed a beachhead there. People had sacrificed and given their lives to bring the gospel to Rome to set plant a church there. It wasn't Paul that planted the church. But the gospel was established in that city and it was a wicked city. And when... Christians are not thought of well and we're hated and we're not high in public opinion. We, do, we tend to do what all Christians tend to do and that's to shut up. We clam up and we say nothing. We don't want to be thought ill of. We don't want to suffer loss. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want people thinking that we're wingnuts. We don't want people thinking that we're crazy or that we've given our lives for a delusion. And so we clam up and we shut up. And the threat to the Christians in Rome was a very real threat. They had their families to think about. Their children's safety to think about. Their own possessions to think about. And my suspicion is that by the time the Apostle Paul got there, they had sort of quieted down in their testimony and were sort of under the radar because Christians were hated in that city because they refused to say, Caesar is Lord. They refused to get involved in the emperor worship, which was the official state-sanctioned worship of the day. In the city of Rome, they refused to bow the knee and worship Nero. Then shows up the Apostle Paul. And the Christians come in and they see him. They hear about the shipwreck and all the beatings and the sufferings and the trials and they they witness not just his imprisonment. Listen, it wasn't just Paul's imprisonment that inspired them. Listen to this. It was how Paul handled his imprisonment that inspired them. If the Apostle Paul had sat there in his own rented quarters and said, poor me, I must be doing something wrong. I must be in sin if God's treating me this way. Oh, poor me, woe is me. I'm not free I don't have this. I don't have that. I would like to be traveling. If the Apostle Paul had responded with discouragement and despair and and a brokenness, you know what would have happened? That's contagious as well. And the other Christians would say, if the great Apostle can't handle imprisonment and come through it with joy, what hope do we have? And then they would get even quieter. But that's not what they observed in Paul. They observed a tenacity, an unbreakable spirit, a spirit-wrought, God-given joy in the midst of those afflictions, and a focus on the gospel and the progress of the gospel that was second to none. And the believers there said, you know what? If God sends us to a prison, he'll go to the prison with us. And if God has a prison for me, then I'll be in the prison and I'll be with Christ. And I would rather have what Paul has in prison than be quiet outside of the prison and have freedom. And so they saw his imprisonment. They saw his response to the imprisonment. Kind of stiffened up their spine. They said, you know what? We can do this. We'll go out and we'll preach the gospel too. Friends, Paul's example, Romans chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Then he writes to Timothy at the end of his life. He's in 2 Timothy now. You know he's not in the own rented quarters. He's in the darkest, deepest, part, remotest part of a Roman dungeon. He's only weeks, maybe months at the most, away from having his head taken off. He's writing to Timothy There is a government-sponsored, massive persecution of Christians. And he says to Timothy, Timothy, come to me. Do not be afraid of suffering. Do not be ashamed of the Lord or of me, His prisoner. But come and join me and suffer with me for the Gospel. Now, if you're Timothy and you're reading that, and you've picked up the book of 2 Timothy and you're reading this letter from your beloved mentor, and you know that to pop your head up as a Christian in Rome is to lose it. And the Apostle Paul writes a letter to you and says, Look, Come to me. Come down to the jail and ask for the Apostle Paul. And ask the guards to take you into the innermost part of the jail. And join with me in suffering, Timothy, for the Gospel. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of me. But come on down, Timothy. Now if you're Timothy, you know what's going to happen, right? Well, it doesn't really work out for me right now. I mean, the kid's having soccer and you know tournament's next weekend i got this going on the church we got the annual business meeting next week i won't be able to leave for 2 3 weeks you start to put it off why you really don't want to join paul in suffering for the gospel do you or do you i think timothy stiffened up his spine when he saw paul's example in second timothy chapter 4 i think he stiffened up his spine and said i'll go and i'll suffer because we read at the end of the book of hebrews our brother timothy has been released from prison timothy suffered to stay in prison I think as a result of going and visiting the Apostle Paul because he stiffened up his spine. And it was Paul's example that inspired him to do that. In the early 1900s, during the Boxer Rebellion in China, Rebels seized a missionary um, missionary school. There was about 100 students and staff members. And Rebels seized them and they locked them all into the The school was fenced in around the yard and there was only one entrance and one exit to the school. And the rebels drew a picture of a cross in the sand there in front of the gate. And they told the students, they said, if you can come out of here and if you will trample the cross on your way out to show your disdain and your disgust for this one that you worship, we'll let you go free. But if you will walk around the cross and if you refuse to trample the cross, then we'll shoot you. And the first six or seven students walked out and they trampled the cross and the soldiers let them go free. But one of the students, I think it was number seven, she walked up and she knelt down before the cross. She prayed for strength. And then she walked around the cross and refused to trample it, and the soldiers shot her dead. The next 93 students that left there walked around the cross to their death, all of them inspired by that one little girl who refused to renounce her faith to save her life. Friends, courage is contagious. And when you're courageous for your faith, it's contagious to others. They see that, and the gospel progresses. Paul says, I want you to know about my circumstances, All you need to know is the Gospels moving forward. I have access into the Praetorian Guard. It's advancing there, and it's advancing because of the faithful witness of Christians in Rome who are giving their lives and being more courageous to speak the Word of God without fear. Now, I have a homework assignment for you for next week. I know this is probably going to go down in history of sermons as the lamest conclusion to a sermon ever, but I want you to look at verses 15 through 18. Some, to be sure, now Paul's talking about those who are preaching the word of God with more without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter, that is, those who are preaching from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, that is, those who are preaching from envy and strife, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress, in my imprisonment. Now, here's your homework assignment. I just want you to mold this over in your mind. I want you to ask yourself, what were those those who were preaching Christ from selfish ambition and conceit, from the vain and the envy and the strife, what were they hoping to do to Paul in his imprisonment? He's under house arrest, and so they, they're going out, and with impure motives, they're saying, we're going to hurt the Apostle Paul. We're going to preach Christ, and it's going to cause him distress. Now, here's my question. What about their preaching was causing Paul distress. They have the right Jesus. They have the right gospel. In preaching Christ, how and why were they hoping to cause Paul harm? Just think about that till next week, and then we'll cover that next week see how close your answers are. Okay? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the grace that You give us in Christ, which gives us strength to stand for You, to be courageous, to be bold, to love Your Word. And God, the example of the Apostle Paul can seem to us at times to be almost surreal and otherworldly as we look at a man who was able to say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we become so consumed with other things, with things of this world, with jobs, with kids, with hobbies, with tasks and busy schedules and agendas that we sometimes lose that focus which should be ours and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and its advancement. And I ask, Lord, that You give to us today the courage and the right frame of mind, the right mentality and thinking and way of looking at our lives, that we might relate everything to the gospel and be encouraged with its constant progress. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org.